Electric vehicles seem to have been around for a long time, yet they also seem to be something of the future. What are some of the key barriers to entry that have historically stopped consumers from adopting an EV? And how has an evolution in technology made them more accessible for many people, particularly those that had suffered from range anxiety or who live in city centre apartments where charging points could be limited? Joining us in this episode is a panel of guests who really know their stuff when it comes to the automotive industry and electric vehicles in particular. Edmund King, OBE, has been the president of the Automobile Association since 2008 and is a trustee and director of the AA Charitable Trust for Road Safety and the Environment. He is also a visiting professor of transport at Newcastle University and he joins us today. Hi Edmund. Hi there, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Uh, next up, we have a man that spends most of his days writing for Top Gear magazine, topgear.com, and The Road Rat, amongst other publications. Increasingly, he writes about electric vehicles, environmental issues, and new mobility. Not just what it means for the car business, but how normal people can relate to it. Paul Horrell, welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me. Hello. Thanks for joining us in the studio as well. And finally, we welcome the CEO of a business that are changing the game when it comes to providing electricity for everyone, everywhere. Lex Hartman has been at Shell-owned company Ubertricity since May 2019, and he joins our discussion today. Welcome, Lex. Yeah, delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You're more than welcome. So, guys, uh, and in particular, Paul, will come to you. It seems like electric vehicles have been around a long time, yet at the same time, they seem to be something of the future. Where do you think we are right now in the EV journey? I think we are at, to use a terrible cliche, the tipping point. There have been electric cars for most of a decade, two of them that were quite affordable, the Nissan Leaf and the Renault Zoe, and then the expensive ones, the Teslas. But the car industry on the whole couldn't see much of a way of making profit out of these things, so it, it wasn't putting them up for sale. So people weren't really conscious of them, and the long-distance charging infrastructure wasn't really very capable. People who charged them at home, they were fine. You know, They'd use them for, for local journeys, and they had a good time with them. But what's happened now is that as a combination of the availability of cheaper materials to build the batteries and so on, cheaper technologies, the car manufacturers can make a profit out of it. And also, they need to do it because more and more countries are bringing in legislation that say, look, we cannot carry on burning oil, warming the planet, messing everything up for our kids. Let's stop. Absolutely. And Edmund, do you think that legislation is a key driver for many of these OEMs in terms of developing the technology and, of course, the consumers that are making these purchasing decisions? Yeah, definitely. The 2030 date is actually pretty radical. Uh, originally, it was 2040, then brought forward to 2035, and now 2030. So if you look at that, in less than nine years' time, all new cars bought in the United Kingdom must be zero emissions. That is a massive change. It's the biggest change in the auto industry probably for the last 50 years. You look at cars today, they're pretty similar to cars from 100 years ago, but that change is, is going to come. So I think we are going to see vast changes in the industry and the consumers have got to change fairly rapidly. Uh, now, Paul, you mentioned this accessibility to EVs has historically been difficult. We are at that tipping point. There are many people uh, listening to this right now who live in flats or apartments. They don't necessarily or they don't think they necessarily have access to charging points outside their home. Is this a barrier to entry for them joining the EV revolution? And we'll come to you, Lex, because you are and your company, Ubertricity, are changing the game when it comes to making charging points more accessible, aren't they? I hope so. At least uh, we are doing our best. I do think that we are facing a big, big change and that driving a car combined to a combustion engine will be completely different. We will not go to a gasoline station to charge electricity, of course, in the future. And that is the big change. And we are actually at the beginning of this huge development. It's not only for the first movers anymore, it will be for everyone. And that's the interesting thing is if you try to, well, look through your glasses as if it, as if it is 25 or even 30 and how the world will look like and we will have millions of these electrical vehicles and then you're going to ask yourself how will the infrastructure look like that is the question we have to answer and then things come in like range anxiety 
uh, people do not buy electrical car because they can't charge or it's too expensive or or actually they have never driven an electrical vehicle they should do because it's cool to drive one it actually is fun and that's what we were working on but one of the things that we will change of course is this element of what can people do in the future to charge should they go to a gasoline station and then wait which is very consumer unfriendly or will you actually see in the future that that people are not afraid for range anxiety anymore and by the way most people are afraid do not have an electrical car but that will change in the uh, into the future or will it charge somewhere in the city what what you can do everywhere and then in the same time doing something else like shop or sleep or work and that will be the change in our behavior i believe edmund you wanted to follow up with something there yeah, I think, though, if we're realistic about this, the majority of people will charge at home if they can. And yes, it is a problem for 30-odd percent who don't have access to off-street parking, a garage, or, or somewhere at home. And that is a particular problem. But, I mean, I've been driving EVs on and off for about 20 years. I've had a charging point at home probably for about... 10 years and most of my charging will be done there the range anxiety kicks in when you go on a longer journey so the other weekend i went from hertfordshire to norwich and back and i was convinced i wanted to do it on one charge and it became a bit obsessive on the way back this challenge and your mental maths improves because on the one section it says the range left is 100 miles and then on your sat nav it says you've got 102 miles to go so how can you make those two closer so you can slow down obviously you wouldn't break the speed limit you can turn off the air conditioning you can even perhaps if you're on a motorway or dual carriageway get in behind a truck so you become almost obsessive with kind of what used to be called eco-driving, but it's now expanding the range of your car. Luckily, I did get home with 13 miles, and I had told myself that I would stop and charge if it got close to 10. So I kept my eye on the sat-nav that kept telling me there were charging points. Now, okay, that's maybe an extreme example, but things have changed so much. The first electric car I had in 2011 was a Ford Think car with a range of about 37 miles, you know, a top speed of about 50 miles an hour, if you were lucky. Now go from that to the current array of models on the market, and the range is normally at least 200 miles. They are much safer Euro NCAT crash testing five stars, and they are fun to drive. Yeah, maybe five years ago, I was a little pessimistic about the future because the earlier EVs in 2011, 2012, they were functional, they worked, they had good batteries, but for someone like me, they weren't that exciting. You know, it, it, they did the job, but it didn't give me that passion, that excitement. Today, when I look out and test the current set of EVs, it is a totally different world. You can have great fun on EVs, the range is getting better, but there is still that anxiety amongst people that we need to help them to overcome. Now, if, if I may add then, I'm completely with you, Edmund, that this is an issue, of course, but you are describing in the first part of your comments the situation that is maybe three or 4% of the charge events. And it is the exemption because most people, well, maybe they drive 100 miles a day, which is actually a lot. And all these people would like to charge when they are at work or when they are at home. And if they don't have an own driveway, which 60% of the people don't have an own driveway in the, in the city, then they would like to charge in front of the door because the consumer wouldn't like to walk more than 100 meters to his car. That's everywhere, everywhere the same. And if you look in some countries in the world where actually there are already a lot of electrical vehicles driving around, like Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, I'm Dutch, as you have noticed from my accent by now, but I live in Berlin, 
So actually, you see that, that in the Netherlands, the, the best sold cars, the three best sold cars are electrical vehicles at this very moment. And every 20 to 25 kilometers or miles, there's a fast charge station. But the funny thing is, if you drive around in the Netherlands, I have this contest with my wife always when I'm driving there. And it says the first one who makes a picture of a charging station with a car wins. And because there's hardly ever a car, it's not because there are no electrical cars. It is because people will charge fast charging. We will absolutely need that too, because one once in a time you drive somewhere else and you want to come back. But most people in our infrastructure will want to charge in their own driveway, at work, or on street in front of their door. And that is what we have to look at in the future. Okay, Paul, just if I may to clarify, I think given that we're talking to people who probably haven't got electric cars, there are two types of charging that we have to be aware of. There is what you might call slow charging, the overnight charging or over a day charging where it takes about eight hours to do. And that's what people do when they're at home. Or in my case, I can't plug in at home, but it doesn't matter a bit because a lot of the lampposts around me are um, have got Lexis Ubertricity points in them. And of course, people think, I can't see any charging stations. Well, a petrol station is lit up, brightly coloured neon with a honking great sign 50 foot in the air above it. A lamppost that you can plug into has just got a little black disc that's a rainproof cover for the plug, and you just plug it in. So people think there are no sockets, but there are. Now, the other type of charging is the, the rapid charging, which is like filling your car with petrol, where you go to a place, you plug it in, and an hour later it's charged up. And very few people do that, as Lex is saying, because why would you? You know, if you had a little hose on the side of your house that was dribbling petrol into your car overnight, and every morning you had 200, 250 miles of petrol in your car, you wouldn't go to a petrol station more than three or four times a year, because you just wouldn't need to. And that's how life is for most people who've got electric cars. And that applies to whether you've got an actual charger on the side of your house, or whether you live in an area where there are lamppost sockets and other slow overnight sockets and for most people in those areas that's all they need they don't need to use them even every night if you drive 10,000 miles a year you only need to charge up once a week so one socket one overnight socket could deal with seven or eight people's cars yeah i was just saying paul the problem with that though is that there are some areas in the country where local authorities haven't taken action we did a major freedom of information request for the english local authorities and just one in six english councils had actually installed on-street charging points in residential areas and this is despite the fact there's a 20 million pound grant from government and what many of them were doing weren't installing charging points on the street but were putting them into car parks which is welcome as well but it's not what the individuals want as lex said people like to charge outside their house or close to their house and the other thing we've begun to know is some local authorities who were early adopters and put in charging points, frankly, now just don't look after them. No, there are a lot of where, broken Where points. I live, yeah. I went out at the weekends and the three charging points that have been in my local city probably for eight or nine years, they've all got plastic bags over the top. They're all taped up. So we need to get the situation improved across the country. Currently, there are enough charging points generally because it's only one or two percent of cars are pure electric, but that will increase rapidly over the coming years. And I think that's where it's not just the number, but it's ensuring that all those charging points are also working. And I think that is still an issue in some areas. So, Paul, yep. we've got a long time to do this. I mean, I know you say nine years is very close. Um, so that means in nine years' time, all the new cars will have to be electric. But only a small proportion of the cars that people buy every year are new. You know, most people buy a second-hand car. So until 2030, till 2040, you'll be able to buy a second-hand petrol car and drive it until 2050. And so we don't need to think about providing one charging point for every single car. That will just be a vast over-provision. But once there is demand, then surely the providers will provide. I mean, the reason that there are so many broken EV charging points, and that drives me bananas, is that nobody's using them. 
at the moment, as you say. And when people start using them, I think you know, they will be maintained and they will be used. And I agree with you too that putting them in car parks is also an extremely bad idea because you've usually got to pay more for the parking than you have for the electricity. Lex, you were going to say something? Yeah, I wanted to add something. First of all, Paul, I think that it's public through that people who buy a new car that they don't do that every two years. Most of them don't. But all these company cards, there's a development that companies want to promote that their employees drive an electrical car. They do that by giving bonuses or punish them even in the other way around if they buy a gasoline car. And that is something that goes rather quick. And then our young people, so the students who are now studying and they will earn money in two, three, four years, they want to buy an electrical car. It's actually a different kind of people. And that's why I think it will go very, very fast and much faster than we think at this very moment. It will take a couple of years, of course. The other interesting point is that one of you just mentioned slow charging. I call it convenient charging because it's actually you charge at a moment when you can do something else. You don't have to go somewhere. And what we have to realize is that it's not only the number of cars, but it's also, of course, renewable energy. We are driving electrical cars because of renewable energy, not the other way around. If you look at the electrical system, I used to be a CEO of transmission system operators. Um, I don't know much about electrical cars, maybe, but I do know about integrated systems. And if we have millions of cars, then we can't charge all at the same time at five o'clock when we come home and the sun is just gone away. And we will need to do that at another moment. Otherwise, we would need to enforce the grid in such an enormous way that it would be much too costly. And if you realize that, and if you realize also that the installed production capacity of renewables with 60 to 70% on average will be 250% of peak demand, that means that we will need all these batteries that accidentally have wheels. We will need that for the whole system. And that means that we will need more sockets than cars. Otherwise, they can't be a part of the system. And that's the change that we will be facing that wherever the car is, it needs to be connected to the system. And that's where on-street charging, charging at home and charging at work will be responsible for, let's say, 96% of the charging events. I think one thing to come out of the this podcast episode so far is that the demand for electric vehicles is certainly increasing, but there needs to be uh, rapid developments in the infrastructure. Is that something, Edmund, that you're worried about as president of the AA and something that you think we're going to struggle to meet the demand across different governments and different countries? Or do you think we're well on track to meet infrastructure demands? I actually think we are well on track. If you look around, the percentage of EVs is still relatively low. And as an EV driver, I rarely have to wait at a charging point. Obviously, over time, that will change. And we will need to look at things. Have we got adequate chargers for disabled people? Have we got a queuing system so you know in the future there will be new problems currently it is pretty easy to find a charge at home at work even at hotels now you know when you check a hotel you know have you got your own bathroom has it got wi-fi you'll also check has it got a charging point and it's those kind of destinations where you might spend some time two nights at a hotel then you may need to charge up. But I'm pretty optimistic about the infrastructure. I do still think there are some issues, though, with those without their own on-street parking. I still think that's a bit of a challenge in some areas. And it will be a range of solutions. You know, Paul mentioned the on-street charging, and that's part of it. But people really don't like to drive a long way to charge their cars. So I think there, we do need to address that. There are some kind of community charging schemes whereby if you're lucky enough to have your own home charger on your driveway, you can rent it out to other people. So I think it will be a combination of things. But at the moment, we're on track and it's relatively easy as an EV driver to find somewhere to charge up. 
as you get more and more EVs, obviously there will be more competition for those spaces. We do see in behavior and what people like, what consumers like and what they don't like. First of all, it's of course about price. And don't they pay too much? But secondly, if you come home from your work and you drive to your home, to your house, then actually you want to be sure that you actually can charge somewhere in the neighborhood. So that's not too far away. And we all know that even with a combustion engine, that's how irritating it is if you have to drive around 20 minutes to find a parking space. So in the future, we will need to look at features that help the consumers. So is there a parking space nearby? Is there a right to have a public charging point? Can you request that to, to the city, uh, for example? Should we combine it with parking fees into the future? Can we reserve a parking bay or a charging point? I, mean, I think you would be ready to pay a certain amount if you drive from your work and you could reserve a public parking space in front of your house so that you're sure that you can actually park there. Now, before COVID, I traveled to London every two to three weeks. And my biggest hobby was to walk around in the evening along my lamppost, just to have a look. I've got a couple of lampposts in London, which were never used. And then actually I had a look at one of them and I asked the neighbor around and there was a car standing. And the guy that parked the car there was on a sabbatical for a year and parked the car in front of the lamppost. And that's the reason why it, but these are all operational issues, I would say, in the beginning of a market that is actually developing. That will, in cooperation with authorities, we will come to solutions. And then with new features, so actually that it becomes very, very convenient. And I think what we as a branch should do is look at mobile telephoning. It is extremely consumer friendly. And that's what it should be. Yeah, you should have a parking space you should be able to charge immediately within seconds at a competitive price and that's what will happen in five years yeah now paul you've got your finger on the pulse when it comes to what consumers are saying about electric vehicles do they share edmund's optimism in terms of where we are in terms of developing the infrastructure or are people genuinely concerned that they might not have access to charging points as lex just mentioned there Oh, they're genuinely concerned. And uh, that concern partly stems from actually speaking to people who have got electric cars. I mean, it's all very well for people who know about the industry to project forward five years. But if you're standing around right now and wondering whether to get an electric car now, I'm afraid the picture is in many ways a bit of a train wreck. It's true that the mobile phone industry is a very user friendly. You can go anywhere in Europe and you can just use your phone and you don't know what network you're using and it doesn't matter it all comes back on your bill at the end of the month whereas trying to pay for electricity is a complete mess you need to belong to any number of different charging networks you need to have different charge cards you need to have to have logged in and given all your inside leg measurements and and all the prices are different it's just a total mess so it will turn itself the right way around very quickly. It will have to, if you believe in the ability of the markets to do things without being kicked down the road by the government. I'm afraid I don't. I think the government really has to get cracking on this. But then that's because I'm a terrible top-down lefty in many ways. <laughs> but most people, if they were to ask an EV owner, they would say charging is difficult unless you have a regular charging place at or near your house. And not just difficult, but also confusing, right? Partly because these different networks that I mentioned, they keep changing their names. You know, they're like South American criminals every time they turn up with a different alias. One of the oil companies has got a charge network that's been called three different things in the past five years. So you think you've logged on to a network and then you find it's not that network anymore and its app has changed and you've got to have a new password and blah, blah, blah. No, yeah, sorry, consumers are not being served here. So although the infrastructure exists, it's ruddy hard to use. Yeah. And consumers do want that simplicity, don't they, Edmund? You will have noticed, I'm sure, an increase in the amount of electric vehicles that are now signed up as members of the AA. You know, how has that number increased over the past three years? And do you think that it would have been more if simplicity was at the core of having access to that charging infrastructure? Yeah, without a doubt, Paul makes a good point that the system has become over complex and it really needs to be simplified. I mean, I remember when I went from a plug-in hybrid to a 
full EV, I asked a colleague of mine or an ex-colleague of mine who was one of the early adopters and had been driving EVs for 10 years or so. And I asked him for some basic advice about charging. And I got an email that was about six pages long telling me the number of cards I needed, the number of apps I needed, the different systems. And that is overcomplicated. I couldn't understand it. And it's not just the charging infrastructure stuff that also the questions about what electricity supplier do you use? What is the best supplier to have at home to take advantage? That's quite complex as well. On the AA side, what is really interesting, though, is that we did a survey of 15,000 drivers recently, and we asked them about their next car and thinking about their next car. And I was really quite surprised that 49%, so almost half of them, said they would consider an EV as their next car. So that doesn't mean they'll buy one, but at least they're beginning to think about it. Whereas a few years ago, those figures were much lower. But in terms of actual breakdowns, it's quite interesting because currently we deal with about 36,000 breakdowns a year from full electric car drivers. And to put it into context, that is only about 1% of our workload. So it still is a small fraction. But the very interesting thing is, why do EVs break down? And is it any different from petrol and diesel cars? Well, when you look at the top reasons for breakdown across ICE cars and EV cars, it is almost exactly the same. The top reason for a non-EV is the 12-volt battery, about 26%. The top reason for an EV is the 12-volt battery, about 17.5%. The second biggest cause for breakdowns for a non-EV, it's tyre problems or wheel problems because of all the potholes, etc. 12% for non-EV. Go on to EVs, and EVs still suffer from potholes, 12.8%. So about 30% of the breakdowns for EVs and non-EVs are exactly the same. It differs when you go beyond that, because beyond that, for the more conventional cars, it tends to be engine faults, alternators, starter motors. And interestingly, for the EVs, the next reason for breakdown is actually the charging equipment so possibly not knowing how to plug it in or not being able to plug it in properly or problems with the socket and then below that it comes to things like warning lights etc etc so in terms of breakdowns it's not that different all aa patrols are actually trained to deal with ev breakdowns We had one of the first EV training rigs at our centre in Albury, so they all work on that. And the only differences are that they have a little more kit that they wouldn't have had before, so high-voltage, zero-rated gloves that our patrols now carry. They have a little G1 thermal image camera so they can tell where the electricity is. And the other thing we have developed is something called the freewheeling hub because one of the problems with evs and indeed some suvs is they are very difficult to tow on two wheels it can damage the vehicles so our chief engineer a guy called steve ives he worked on this problem in his shed at night and he developed this wooden prototype of a freewheeling hub and in essence what it does The AA patrol comes up, you can get the EV on the two rear wheels and you put this freewheeling hub on each side of the two rear wheels so that it actually goes deeper than the wheel. And then when the car's towed, it is towed on the freewheeling hub rather than on the actual vehicle. It is genius. All our patrols now have that. It means they can recover EVs and those big SUVs as well that might not be EVs. And that has changed their performance because as an EV driver, if you run out of charge, 
you don't really want someone to come along and give you five miles of charge. You want to be taken to a rapid charging point, ideally, where you can get 50, 60 miles of charge quickly. And also, you don't want to be left in a dangerous place where you've broken down. So that is what our patrols are doing for EV drivers, and it's working well. So obviously, we are planning for the future and reassuring our members that we do cover any car, you know, petrol, diesel, EV, it doesn't matter. Because some people were saying, well, will I be covered? And we, we treat EV owners the same way, despite the extra equipment, as all other customers. What you're saying, Edmund, they will come, although we have these startup problems, let's say, to get the infrastructure and what to do with these cars if they stand still. One of the most important reasons is politics and people, why we will see this acceleration. Now, first of all, you see that politicians in cities in Europe, they stumble over each other to take action to promote it. And once you have to pay £30 a day in London to get into the city, well, then it becomes very economical to have a car. In Amsterdam, there's already decided that in 2030, you're not allowed with a combustion engine uh, anymore into the city. So you will have to. But the most important thing are our young people. I will tell you a small anecdote. I live in a nice neighborhood in Berlin. I'm Dutch, but I live in Berlin. And I visited a friend of mine, and most of my friends who also live in a nice neighborhood, are guys between 50 and 60 and they drive a Porsche. That's because they can show off and show to other people that they can afford a car for 150,000 euros. And then I visited him and I asked this guy, Uwe, and I said, Uwe, where's your Porsche on a Saturday morning? And then he said, yeah, well, I, I, I parked it around the corner. I said, what did you do that? Well, my daughter is coming. She, the daughter is studying law in Cologne. She's coming to visit me this afternoon with friends and I don't want to show the Porsche. And that's what's happening in our society. And the function will be different, it will be less a status symbol, and that's why we will see this acceleration. And we will solve all these practical issues Edmund just mentioned. And at the end of the day, within a couple of years, no one will drive around with eight credit cards and two cables. It will be extremely simple. Yeah, I would add to that why people want to buy electric cars i mean there is the green issue of course you know people just want to do the right thing and as you say people also want to be seen to do the right thing but what we're ignoring here is that for the vast majority of drivers electric cars are just plain nicer you know i mean i like the sound of a combustion car of course i do you know i like the sound of an engine i work for top gear but the simple fact is that if you take a very old Nissan Leaf, it is smoother and quieter and more responsive than any petrol engine car that Rolls-Royce has managed to develop in the hundred years it's been to trying to develop the best petrol car possible. An electric car, you press the accelerator, it just goes. It doesn't change gear. You don't have to muck around with the clutch. You know, there's no turbo lag. There's no noise or vibration. It just works. It's brilliant. You know, that's why a lot of people, once they've tried an electric car, will want to keep one. Now, this episode is EVs are now for the many and not just the few. Paul, obviously, cost, it becomes a major factor here, a major consideration for anyone looking to make that purchase of an electric vehicle. The cost of an electric vehicle can seem quite expensive, but have you got any thoughts on the total cost of ownership and when a typical consumer should start seeing some savings by making the switch? Well, we are now at a point where you can get the same car or effectively the same car with a choice of different engines. So, for example, a Vauxhall Corsa or a Peugeot 208, you can buy it with a petrol engine or a diesel engine or an electric drive. You can buy a Volkswagen Golf or you can buy a Volkswagen called an ID3, which is, you know, the equivalent of a Golf, same size, but driven by electricity. And the electric ones are a bit more expensive, but provided you can charge at home, they're cheaper to run and they're cheaper to service. And if you can do quite a simple calculation, because most people don't, when they buy a new car, almost nobody goes into a showroom with a uh, suitcase full of cash or a checkbook and gives them the money. What happens is they buy it on monthly payments, leases or PCPs. And the lease or PCP for those equivalent electric cars might be 80 or 100 quid a month more. But as I say, if you're doing a kind of average mileage, you have the potential to save that every month on the fuel. And if it's a company car, 
the taxation difference can be thousands of pounds a year. And mm. if you ever drive into the London congestion zone, you know, that's the price of the zone every day. You don't have to pay if you've got an electric car. And some places there's free charging and some at work and some places there's free parking in various city centres, car parks. So there are all sorts of other savings which you can look at that apply to the way you drive a car. You just have to do a bit of investigation before you make the purchase. We've come to a moment in the market where the product is becoming mature. And so actually, until now, you could buy a Tesla and a Nissan Leaf in red, white or blue. And that was about it. And, but now you see there's a vast range of products coming to the market. So that becomes the market is mature and consumers uh, would like to have a choice. So it's not only for the first movers. So that's one. And then looking at price, if you look at the total cost of ownership, then actually you see that the moment has come that it is equal or becoming cheaper. And if you look at the development of the cost of an electrical car, and you look five and ten years back, then actually you see that we've come at a very early moment, much earlier than expected, that this moment is there that actually the total cost of ownership is becoming cheaper. And electric cars will be becoming more cheaper and more cheaper, and combustion engines won't, because that is already at the lowest point that is uh, actually possible. And then on top of that, what Paul says, there will be there will be action from governments who actually say, well, I'm going to charge you more, uh, or I'll give you a discount on the tax, and that makes it extremely attractive. So the economical argument will be there more and more. It will for employees. It will be more and more because they can get from their company a nicer car when they have an electrical car. And that will happen as well. And what you will see in cities, of course, is that small lorries, cars like this, will be electrical as well because the city wants it. So it's not only for the fancy neighborhood and the rich neighborhoods, also for other neighborhoods where this demand will be. And that's, of course, coming into, well, what we also like to see because we focus with ubiquitousity on the 60% of the people who do not have an own driveway and are dependent on on-street charging. So... It's a bright future. And Lex, you must look at this quite closely at Ubertricity. Obviously, total cost of ownership will mean switching from traditional petroleum to electric charging points. Is this a consideration that uh, people are making when they switch to an electric vehicle? Yeah, if I could just add, I agree with the points that Lex and Paul have made there about the other advantages and cost savings. However, that message still isn't getting across. 81% of consumers say electric cars are too expensive. 50% of consumers are unaware that you can get a £350 grant for a home charging point. 34% of consumers aren't aware of the plug-in grant that you can get £2,500 off your car. So whereas I agree with all those other points. And as Lex alluded to, there will be more ultra-low emission zones where people will be charged if they don't have a zero emission car. I think we still have to do more to sell those broader benefits to the public to show that it isn't just the list price of the car. And there are other things people can do because some consumers are still worried and they say, but the main battery of the EV, what if that goes wrong? when the warranty runs out. Now, we know of Teslas and Nissan Leafs that have done 150,000 miles or more, and there's never been a problem with the battery. But if a consumer thinks that way, there are different ways of buying cars. At the AA, we have something called Smart Lease, where you can buy a new EV, your insurance is included, your servicing is included, your breakdown is included. And I know in Holland, the ANWB have a similar scheme that lots of people use. So you can buy that car in a lease scheme, and then you have no worries about the main battery going wrong. And if you have a change in your lifestyle, you change jobs, you have kids, etc., you can then change the car as well. So I think we will find more flexibility in the way people buy cars, and it probably won't be as much just buying it outright because people might want to change their EV after two or three years to get a different model because technology is getting better all the time. And peace of mind 
peace of mind is so important, isn't it? Particularly if you've got these families. And I think more and more in life, you know, outside of the automotive industry, people are moving and getting used to these subscription type models as well. And I think that's probably where we'll start seeing EVs go to. But as mentioned, it is an education, isn't it? It's an education. We need to get across the message to consumers about not only the the total cost of ownership over a period of electric vehicles life, but also the very tax efficient benefits that you can get and the grants available that you can get from governments uh, where electric vehicles are available. Whose job is that, Paul, do you think? Is that the government's job to educate us on those benefits? Well, I like to think it's mine partly um, (laughs) because I want to stay employed and, you know, what I do is communicate about cars. But it's also Edmunds, you know, AA and the other motoring organisations are available. It's also clearly the manufacturers. I mean, I think one of the main problems we have at the moment is that in the car showrooms, um, now that people are allowed to go back to them, there are a load of car salespeople who are just used to selling petrol cars. They know the deal. They know how to do it. They know that they will get, as a dealer, a load of subsequent business from people coming back to have their petrol cars serviced. And they can't quite see the profit in selling electric cars, a lot of them. So um, they'll steer you into an old petrol car. So there are a lot of things that can be changed, a lot of communication that needs to be done. And I think it's everybody's job. But I, I do think that a bit of push from government and, as Edmund mentioned, local authorities as well, will really move things along. And in terms of local authorities, they have the power to do a lot of incentivising. If I had a big petrol car, it would cost me 600 quid to get a permit to park in my street, even though they can't guarantee me a parking space, whereas an electric car is next to nothing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And on subscriptions, people getting used to paying out subscriptions, whether it be for a mobile phone vehicle, you know, even your washing powder, I think you can get now on subscription. Lex, are you finding that people are very used to this model that Ubertricity provides about a subscription? They're used to it and very happy to use it. Well, of course, consumer behavior is like electrical cars and like the infrastructure also in the beginning of a certain development. What we see actually is, first of all, that the most important thing is that someone can actually charge. It's even more important than price. So subscription in combination with someone else, the most important thing is that you can charge in front of your door in your own driveway. People are willing to pay a bit more, or even substantial more, if they can park. So this is at this very moment the most important part. But that will change, of course, because you can charge everywhere, and then there will be more competition on price. And now what we will see, of course, that there will be combinations of loyalty programs, what can you combine with parking. One of the elements that I think, next to subscription, what will be important in the future is a certain quality of your electricity. What you see uh, that people that drive electrical car, they want to know what they have charged. Again, we are driving electrical cars for renewables. And if you have an electrical car, and actually you think that coal production plant has produced your electricity, then it doesn't bring very much. So the, the, the thing about quality of your electricity will be something which is important into the future. So the providers of infrastructure, electricity, services combined with other products will be extremely important in the future. But first of all, at this very moment, it is about availability and then, of course, about the quality of the energy that is delivered. One thing I would add to that is that the quality of electricity is improving. The carbon content of the grid, certainly in the UK, has been falling. When the first electric cars came in, people did studies that said, oh, well, actually, if you count the CO2 coming out of the power station, they end up being very similar to driving around in a diesel car. Since then, the renewable electricity has taken more and more of a proportion of the electricity that's generated in Britain. And so the cars are greener. And this is an interesting thing about if you buy an electric car now, it will get greener over its lifetime because the renewable content of the grid is set to improve and improve and improve. Whereas if you buy a petrol or a diesel car, it's probably going to get less and less efficient as it gets older and smokier. Absolutely. So not only can you save money by switching to electric, but you can also make the world a better place as well and contribute to green energy. 
In a moment, I'm going to bring in a consumer that is on the fence about switching to an electric vehicle. I thought it might be a nice idea to put him to our expert panel of guests here and see if we can convince him within five minutes to make that switch to an electric vehicle. Before we do, is there anything else that any of you would like to add for this podcast episode about EVs for the many and not just the few? Edmund, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think my main point is, um, you know, I went from a plug-in hybrid to a full EV, and it's the best decision I've ever made. I was an original petrol head. I grew up next door but one to Colin Chapman of Lotus Cars in Norwich, so I loved cars, I loved motor racing, and I still do, and I still love driving an EV. So as well as all the environmental benefits as well as all the financial benefits and there are many it can still be great fun to drive absolutely and that's why i'm hearing loud and clear actually is that despite all the technological advancements it's just fun and that's what it's all about lex why are evs now for the many and not just the few my answer would be to all of you but also to everyone who listens if you would take, let's say, the, the small trouble to download my Ubertricity app, and not for charging, but then zoom in in London on Clapham. And if you do that, then actually you see that in Clapham, we've turned almost every lamppost into a charge port. And then you see what the issue is. So you actually can charge everywhere. And then you actually see that the future is already there in Clapham. Other areas, uh, uh, maybe not. And that's actually how you can convince. And I don't know who our guest is, but up front, I already would say, move to Clapham and find, find a company where you work, where you can charge at work, and then you're convinced to buy an electrical car. But we will see where the discussion runs. Okay. And finally, Paul, I guess, seen as influencing behaviour in the automotive industry. Why do you think now is a good time for EVs to become for the many and not just the few? Uh, Because I think for many more people than might imagine, charging is available, either because they can do it at home if they live in the countryside and have a driveway or somewhere next to their shed where they can put a charging point, or if they live in towns where there are many more chargers than they might think there are, and there are several apps that you can look at to see where all the charge points are. But I don't think we should overgeneralise here. For many people, they're not necessarily the perfect thing if you drive you know many hundreds of miles a day in a van up and down the motorway or in a car up and down the motorway don't do it yet but that's the same as say oh my goodness i've gone and bought a two-seat sports car and i've just realized i've got three kids you know it's pretty straightforward to work out whether or not it's going to be suitable for you in terms of how many miles you do in a day but 250 miles a day is plenty for most people yeah yeah that's for sure is there anything you feel we've missed? Yeah, I mean, we didn't say anything about second-hand electric cars, really, but we talked about how durable they are. Okay. Um, but the thing is that at the moment there aren't many around, but by the time we get to 2030, there will be plenty around. So I think that will also push the market forward. Is that something you want to comment on, it, Edmund? Do you have any kind of visibility on that? Yeah, we've looked at used EVs, and the situation is getting a lot better. We've got a... AA Cars website and used EVs are coming up all the time and they are becoming more affordable, even though they do actually keep their value as well. So it's a combination of that. The prices don't drop off the cliff when they're two years old. But I think what will change the used car market, as Lex alluded to, the early adopters will be the fleets. It is the fleets and the car rental companies that will buy the majority of brand new EVs. And then within two or three years, those will filtrate into the used car market. So I think at the moment, yes, there are cars out there, but in two or three years time, we will see a very, very healthy used car market for EVs. And I think also if you've got people fleet buyers or people who have their electric car as a company car and they find themselves 
missing important company meetings because they've got to a charger and they don't have the right app or it's not working, then I think you'll have some very strong forces ensuring that the apps and the payment infrastructures are made to work. You know, if you get a few MPs who miss an important debate in Parliament (laughs) because they're stuck at the side of the motorway and can't get a charge, things will change. And so if you have influential people and influential fleets taking on these electric cars, then the rest of it, I think, will follow. What, what you didn't touch upon is maybe uh, it's not the everyday normal charging, but there will be a category of cars, which I call heavy users, which will be dependent on fast charging in hubs in cities, of course. Taxis, buses, lorries, things like that. That will be a different category, of course. Yeah, although I think you try and drive 150 kilometres a day in London as a taxi driver, it's pretty difficult. And so even a taxi or a a van that's being used almost all day in London could still actually do overnight charging if, uh, if it needed to. Sir James Reynolds, music producer for artists such as Paloma Faith, BTS, Kelvin Harris, Ellie Goulding and many, many others. He's also the owner of VoxPod Studios, which is where we're having the pleasure of recording from at this moment in time. And he's currently on the fence when it comes to switching to an EV. So we thought we'd put him in front of our expert panel today to see whether he can be convinced within five minutes whether an electric vehicle should be the next vehicle that he switches to. Welcome to Wheel in motion, James. Fantastic. Well, thank you for having me on. What a great bonus to my Monday, being able to get some expert advice on which car to get next. I feel very, I feel very privileged. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us your current situation. What do you own at the moment? What are you looking for? And what are your general concerns when it comes to switching to an EV? Okay, so situation at the moment is I have a family, two children, a wife. We are big skiers, so we want a car with lots of room. We currently have a Mercedes E-Class with huge boot capacity, all the rest of it, which has been great. We also go down to the south of France a lot over the summer period. So we do quite a lot of driving across Europe. So capacity is one thing. And obviously being a diesel and with the, you know, the whole sort of rollout of the expansion across London, you know, it's not a practical car to have anymore. You know, all the charges that will be coming in place fairly soon. I'm right at the pivotal point, And I was just saying to Dan that I'm literally making my judgment call on where to go next with my next car. And I definitely considered the electric car route, you know, for lots of great reasons. I'm a big fan, but I felt like after speaking to quite a few people and actually doing my own research that I was going to delay it by maybe three to four years and make it my next step rather than step now, simply based on the price of electric cars being maybe slightly inflated compared to normal cars. And, you know, I'm currently looking at a hybrid option, which is electric and petrol as an alternative as a stopgap, I suppose. So I happen to know that James is an avid reader of Top Gear magazine. So, uh, Paul, if James was reading that now, what would you be saying to him? I think I might actually be saying wait, but even possibly don't change at all uh, unless you're on a lease and keep the E-Class diesel because there are no laws at the moment where a two to three year old diesel car is actually going to be banned from city centres or even have to pay charges. It's older cars than that that will... Yeah, mine is actually older. It's it's 2014. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my child will be very grateful that your particulates would be taken off the road. The issue is going to the south of France. I had to go to a meeting in Paris just before the pandemic and I was going in an electric car and I never got there because the whole French motorway network rapid chargers were all down the day I happened to be going and so was the one at the Channel Tunnel terminal and so on. So you have to plan your journeys very carefully. But on the other hand, that might just be how you go. I mean, when you've got kids, do you just put them in the back, send them to sleep and drive 700 miles in a day which is what i used to do before i had a child or do you after 200 miles do they say dad i want a wee and uh, you will stop for an hour and you know then you plug in and maybe you just get as far as burgundy and then you charge up overnight and then you carry on down to the south you know so uh, you know what's wrong with staying in a nice old town in burgundy overnight having a nice meal at a nice restaurant and just doing the journey in a slightly different way you know there are adaptations to having an electric car that you might have to make but they can be made and they're not wholly unattractive yeah absolutely but i would say to add to that going down to provence where we go 
that's more than just a night stop in terms of the mileage you need to do. You would have to do various stops during the day, I think, on the capacity of the electric car at the moment. So if it could take me, you know, uh, halfway there, which is, I think, about 400 miles, yeah, then that would possibly work. But um, Yeah, you'd have to do one lunch stop and then one overnight and then one lunch stop the next day. Yeah. And you'd be there. But the, the other trouble with electric cars is that travelling, if you travel at 65 miles an hour, they'll do pretty much the range that they say they'll do on the tin. But if you travel at French motorway speeds, which is 81 miles an hour, you can only get about two thirds of the range that they say they'll get. Right. So, you know, there are lots of reasons why just to use one as, as a long haul motorway slogger, you're kind of in the wrong place with an electric car at the moment until the infrastructure improves. Staying overnight in Burgundy with a nice bottle of wine and uh, some good food. That sounds appealing, James. Would you share that uh, advice, Lex? So James obviously got some range anxiety there when he wants to go down to his place in France. What would you say to James? on his quest to become an EV owner, potentially? Well, I'll tell you, there are two obvious reasons. The first one is that your wife and your kids will love you for it. <laughs> they will see that as such a fantastic, that dad made the decision, an early adopter. And when they look back five years ahead, that our dad yeah. did that. And so they will love you for it. That's a very important reason. So it, it's a good thing to do, actually, is what I'm and maybe you need to adopt now and then, but I don't know how often you drive to France, but probably not every week. So maybe the adaptation is overseeable, so to say. Secondly, what you will see is it's fun to drive. It really is fun, an electrical car, even in countries where you're not allowed to drive very far. So I live in Germany, so it's even, even worse compared to France, where you can drive as fast as you want, and that's not possible with an electrical car if you want to have a longer range. But doing something good, make your wife and your kids happy, and a cool experience is the main reason why you why you should do that. And why it is, you will see in a couple of years, it is the right decision at this very moment. On the practical side, from an economical perspective, probably it will be more attractive. And then on adaptation, uh, so the thing about range anxiety, well, actually, uh, James, most people that have range anxiety do not have an electrical car. Range anxiety disappears when you have an electrical car because you cope with it, you behave differently, and then it's not an issue anymore. And if at the end of the day, you still would like to say, well, I want to drive 800 miles in one day, for that vacation, rent a car or make a deal yeah. with uh, where you buy the car, if there is maybe a possibility to once or two times a year, you have a different kind of car and then you use that. And that's what you have to adapt. But the main reason is your wife will love you. True, true. But I guess my only question then really is the fact that actually, as you know, I mean, it, it's a hugely sort of massive growing space. And I'm sure that over the next few years, there's going to be a lot of electric cars coming into the market, which will probably drive prices down with competition. So will my wife love me for the fact that we could have possibly had another extra lovely holiday for the expense of paying for a car now? And you know what they say, happy wife equals happy life, I think, James? But then you assume, then you assume that it's actually more expensive. Right. What I'd say on the price, there are different ways of looking at it, but there are different ways of buying a car. So you could actually do a smart lease with the AA, you get your insurance, you get your servicing. And then if another car comes along or you have more kids or whatever, you can then switch. So that's one thing. But what I'd say to you, James, all the issues you raised, I had myself. And what I did, I went for a plug-in hybrid first, and it is a great stepping stone because you get used to charging it, charging at night at home. You get used to going to other places and plugging in. So it's a real stepping stone. And a lot of the other things, James, I agree with you. I was the same. A lot of it is psychological. It really is. I was the same. You know, I go to the Lake District once a year or Cornwall once a year. But that's once a year. And once you get beyond that, having an electric car is great fun. And you do begin to save money. Mine, I don't have to get it serviced for two years. I had to go into London last week to pick something up from the office. I didn't have to pay congestion charge. I pay no vehicle excise duty on my car. I get embarrassed because I don't go into my local petrol station now. When I do, I don't buy fuel when I buy the newspaper. 
And they are getting much, much better, James. I tell you, to drive, some of them are a complete joy. So I think if you forget about the south of France, but even so, from a road safety point of view, I would say every two and a half hours, you should stop off anyway. That's what we advocate rather than driving the whole hog. And if you do stop off and there's a rapid charger, you could plug in. But even forgetting that, think about the majority of your journeys. And I think if you look at it that way, you could save a lot of money. You could have a lot of fun. And yeah, your kids would be happy. Go for it. Looks like two versus one there, Paul, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's all right. I'm always on the losing side in election. <laughs> uh, and the big question, James, is uh, will you be making the purchase? Do you know what? It's given me food for thought, for sure. I'm not going to pin my uh, colours to the uh, mast quite yet, but um, I'm definitely going to mull over the advice, do some more digging and some more research. Yeah, it's a definite possibility. If you are indeed right, my wife and kids will be happy, then obviously that makes my life a lot simpler. So uh, there's a very good argument there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Sir James Reynolds, music producer, Edmund King, president of the AA, Paul Howell, motoring journalist, and Lex Hartman, CEO of Ubertricity. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wheels in Motion podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 